The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with John Thomas Flynn, who is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Ask the CIO, SLED edition on Federal News Network. Now your host, John Thomas Flynn. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Joshua Spence, Chief Technology Officer for West Virginia. Welcome to Ask the CIO SLED Edition, our state and local program. Joshua, it's great to have you on the air. No, well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Before we get started on your IT issues in the Mountain State and uh, your other priorities, and our listeners like to hear a little bit about our, our guest background. Over the last year and a half, I've probably interviewed 25 or 30 state CIOs and another dozen local government CIOs, and their backgrounds are all over the place. I know uh, we've got uh, James Collins in Delaware. He was a dental technician in the Air Force, and, and uh, John McMillan in Pennsylvania was tech support for the Canadian DOD, believe it or not. And our good friend uh, Kurt Wood in my old stomping grounds in Massachusetts, he started his career in the prison, as I like to say, although not in he wasn't a prisoner. He, was, he wasn't a convict. He was a correctional officer. We got a big kick out of that. Uh, you've made your career in public service, and you continue to serve, I know, your country in the National Guard, and we thank you for that. But tell us a little bit more about your background before your appointment by Governor Jim Justice in November 2018. Oh, sure. So um, I actually uh, started my, uh, if we go way back and look at education, I started going down the track of political science and was uh, tentatively planning to go to uh, law school, but um, I was in the National Guard at the time and still am, but uh, that was right right after 9-11, uh, that was, and so I was activated on military orders for a period of time, and when I finished up school, I decided I, I didn't want to go to law school and do something different, and uh, my first part of my Air Force career was in security police, and I had an opportunity to switch over and uh, work on t- computers, and um, actually, it wasn't too long after I got just switched into the computer and the communications area of the Air Force, I got an opportunity to do cybersecurity and uh, just absolutely fell in love with what it was and how it worked and, and the challenges with it and uh, had an awesome opportunity in the military to uh, uh, get a lot of training, participate in a lot of uh, uh, cyber exercises, the initial ones that were really kind of taking place as that became something uh, much more on the forefront of the Department of Defense and just gave me a lot of background in security and technology and, and then an opportunity to take my um, skills to the state government came along um, when uh, I was hired to be the chief information security officer for the state of West Virginia. And so I had about three and a half years in that role working for the state when the opportunity for me to become the state CTO um, came out and uh, I was able to change that role and now I've been in the position for about a year, a little going over a year now. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, uh, that was my next question. How did your uh, uh, CIO appoint or CTO? They're indistinguishable in West Virginia. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, the state CTO position is just outlisted in the state legislative code. Yep. So how did that process work, the politics of it? I know it's interesting to look at your uh, your big boss's background. Big is, a, is no exaggeration. Six, seven, I think I read, justices. But I thought he must have been – I saw where he got a scholarship to uh, University of Tennessee, and I figured it must be for football or, or basketball, but it was for golf, for heaven's sakes. And then he transferred over to, uh, to your school, Marshall, where he was captain of the team. But tell us about how that appointment worked. I know you were, you were the CISO, the Chief Information Security Office, for a number of years, right? Yes, I was. I served in that role for, for about three and a half years. 
And what's been an issue and what we've seen, uh, uh, with especially this administration's recognized um, the importance technology plays in, in both government operations and government services that are provided, and that it's kind of been completely woven in. And it, we, we rely on it to do so much. Um, and when you see the cyber threat that's been ever-increasing, uh, the states, um, local governments included, have to change the way we operate. And so I think part of this was a, was a recognition of uh, the need to amplify the uh, security, move that um, security posture in the right direction. And um, I, I have that background. And so that was one, I think, one of the factors in, in my appointment in, um, into the CTO role. Now, I understand it's interesting. Uh, one of my previous guests was Chris Rain, who's the New Jersey uh, Chief Information Officer. And he was also uh, the CISO for New Jersey before he became CIO. And I think he, uh, the two of you are probably the, the first of, uh, of, a, of a lot more we might be seeing in that role because, as you say, it's become so critical. And uh, a lot of times where technology might be a, take a back door to a lot of other things in the uh, priorities of an administration, uh, certainly the last five, five, five or more years even of security issues and breaches and all that, it's become much more uh, an interesting and uh, a much more prioritized target for a lot of the CEOs of states and local governments as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you see the uh, security piece has um, created a whole lot of uh, buzz about it because of the you know, kind of the fear factor. But the problem we run into is it's not a simple situation to fix. And I'm, I'm being careful with my words. I don't want to call cybersecurity a problem because it infers that you can solve it. And what I like to make sure I'm explaining to the, to those I work with and, and as I try to, uh, to change the mindset of what this means to us is it's this condition by which we have to operate. We now have to accept that there is a risk associated with technology and that we have to understand that risk and manage that risk from now on onward because it will continually change as technology advances. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your office, how you're situated in the organization chart. It's called the Office of Technology, the WVOT. I'm not sure how you guys pronounce that, but tell us a little bit about how you're situated in that chart. Yeah, absolutely. So the West Virginia Office of Technology um, is formed as the central IT service support entity for the executive branch of government that falls under the governor. Our agency falls under the Department of Administration, and we support, if you count every individual um, board and commission, over 200 individual, what we'd say, agencies under the departments that fall under the governor. And we provide centralized IT support services to them. And it was created uh, years ago, um, recognizing that all of these individual agencies were managing um, independent email systems, independent productivity tool systems, and that there was an opportunity to centralize those enterprise services under that enterprise shared services model to provide better benefit to the government operations, but also to the taxpayer dollar. Uh-huh. Well, tell us about a little bit more about your uh, your organization itself, your budget, your staff leadership, et cetera. So um, the Office of Technology in West Virginia is a 100% chargeback agency. Um, we only receive an appropriation to spend. We don't receive any funding from the legislature to do our day-to-day operations. Um, so we have a rate model that recovers our costs for the services we provide. 
we are about uh, 225 members strong, and we have uh, staff distributed across the entire state providing um, desktop support services um, to agencies located anywhere in the state. And then we have a central office within the, the city of Charleston, the capital city, um, where we provide our additional um, enterprise services and uh, out of. So I know that the uh, West Virginia budget is around four and a half. $5 billion a year, as I understand it. So what do you think the IT chunk of that is, even though it's charged back? That's a great question that we're actually trying to answer today. We recognize that there's a significant amount of spend on technology, but how is the spend being categorized and are we actually seeing all of those dollars? So what we've started to do um, is kind of go out at a reverse manner. We've taken a benchmark number that uh, illustrates the approximate spend per state employee for IT. And and from that number, we've been able to then um, calculate what the expected annual spend might be on technology and then count our – and then just subtract out our appropriation amount so that we can then – come up with what do we represent in that budget, and we represent anywhere between 20 and 30 percent of that actual spend. So there's a good chunk of spend on technology likely still within the agencies, and the question is what is that, what of that spend is business unit spend, and what of that is shadow IT? And uh, we want to get our arms around that, because what do we see with technology? We see a huge shift in technology licensing and services under that annual service-based model um, that's likely going to increase the operational expense of technology every year. And, and, and is that going to be a one-for-one or is that going to create an increase? And I think if we're not careful, it's going to create an increase. And we can't necessarily afford to do that. We've got to make sure where our services are expanding or where we're changing technology services, we're addressing a a reduction elsewhere where we might need to. And, and that becomes a challenge um, when you don't have a good perspective of where all those dollars are. So that's, uh, th- and that's a challenge I think everybody faces. I think even the private sector, that's a huge challenge. As you would like to say, if you can't measure it, it's pretty tough to reform it. And certainly uh, West Virginia is not alone in that whole aspect. I know that from my experience, particularly in, in California. We're going to take a short break now. Our guest is Joshua Spence, Chief Technology Officer for West Virginia. You're listening to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Network. I'm John Thomas Flynn. Mars has the light and carbon dioxide needed for plant growth, but two of the biggest obstacles to any life there are the planet's freezing temperatures and lack of an atmosphere that protects from dangerous ultraviolet radiation. So Robin Wordsworth, a professor at Harvard's School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, is creating a warming barrier out of silica aerogel. This remarkable substance is over 97% air and extremely light nearly transparent, but because it has this complex structure, it's one of the most insulating materials, so it's really strong at warming, and it also blocks damaging ionizing radiation. Wordsworth says thin layers of the aerogel could, for example, be built into transparent dome structures on Mars ice caps, melting the ice beneath for water plants could use to grow while safely shielded inside. You can imagine it getting as large as you want to on the Martian surface, covering entire craters, ultimately. With the National Academy of Engineering, Randy Atkins, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
The FBI will train its national and international law enforcement partners on indicators of human trafficking throughout the year, which marks the 20th anniversary of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. The act provides tools to combat trafficking worldwide and requires the FBI to collect data on the crime. All 56 of the FBI's field offices have ongoing human trafficking investigations, more than 1,900 cases. That's an increase in the number of cases over the past several years. Deputy Director David Bowditch. Most of the cases we see roughly 90% are commercial sex trafficking, and they're amongst the most heinous crimes that the FBI encounters. The FBI's Victim Services Division ensures that survivors have access to emotional support, social services, and medical care. We have to speak for the victims. If you are a victim of human trafficking, call or text the National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline at 888-373-7888. With FBI This Week, I'm Molly Halpern of the Bureau. I'm Jared Serbia. Each week, our program on DOD features discussions with the military's top brass, with civilian executives, and defense thinkers on how the Pentagon operates. It's reliable information from the people making and executing policy. Tune in Wednesdays at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. on Federal News Network or subscribe to On DOD on iTunes or Podcast One. Welcome back to Ask the CIO Sled Edition on Federal News Radio. Part of Federal News Network, I'm John Thomas Flynn, and my guest today is Joshua Spence, CTO or Chief Technology Officer for the state of West Virginia. Joshua, we were just talking about the whole issue of uh, identifying your uh, IT spend, and it is a challenge uh, for some more than others. And just a quick story, when I was in California, I became CIO there. They told me the uh, the IT budget was between 2 and $4 billion, and I said, well, how come you only know that's pretty pretty widespread? I said, how do you find out what it is? And they said, we do a survey once a year. Now, this was 1996. They did a survey once a year for all the agencies to uh, identify their IT spending. And fast forward now, that was in 95. So 25 years later, fast forward, they still do a survey once a year to determine their IT costs. So you can imagine <laughs> how accurate that must be. Let me shift a little bit when we're talking about your organization again. Talk about your infrastructure, your primary data centers and network. Under whose responsibility does that fall? So the core infrastructure and the primary uh, data centers do fall under the responsibility of the office technology to provide those as enterprise services. And that's uh, one of the areas that we're putting some effort into in uh, modernization. And we have an active initiative uh, that we've uh, entitled Data Center 2.0. And have you been through the whole consolidation effort, or, or is that what you're describing now? No, so the the office was uh, had an, a consolidation effort occurred uh, back in uh, starting, I think, 2005, 2006, up through 2008 was the range in which the activity started and, and kind of ended in the creation of the Office of Technology. And in that consolidation effort, what was brought in was most IT staff into the or- central organization. What was re- left remaining was the direct application support for the larger agencies that had a large uh, application portfolio. So they kept a lot of their developers and, and application support staff. The rest of the staffs came into the central agency. Um, and we've been operating under that model ever since. Well, we're now wanting to take uh, on the Data Center 2.0 initiative is to do an upgrade of our infrastructure uh, and how we manage data centers to make them hybrid data centers ready for more workloads 
that will inevitably go to cloud resources. And then we also want to make sure we're, we're consolidating uh, the, the footprint uh, with virtualization and other technologies that allow us to do that. And then the third piece of it is to make sure we're building in the proper security architecture. We need to make sure we have the security controls to meet compliance requirements for applications that have higher level of compliance requirements, but for applications where the, the compliance requirements aren't there and the associated risk is not there, well, we don't want to have to burden those entities with those additional costs. Okay. I'm always interested in uh, state and local government CIO's relationship with uh, their chief executive uh, and their executive champion. In a sense, I guess that would be the cabinet secretary of the Department of Administration. I believe it's Alan McVeigh. Tell us about that relationship and how you work with him. Well, it's definitely great to have um, a cabinet secretary that understands the importance of managing state organizations to provide uh, service-based support because, again, in the Department of Administration, most of the agencies are designed to provide services to the other state agencies and understanding the importance of that model and how the success of an agency that's in that role means the success of all the agencies that they're supporting. It, you just see the importance, and he definitely understands that and is very uh, supportive of what we're, we're doing in uh, the Office of Technology. And it's important to have a champion there that can um, translate uh, from the technology side of things to more of the government operations business mindset, and, and that's another good piece of the puzzle when uh, you're involving the, the governor's cabinet and got to be able to make that translation of language so that the, the issues are understood uh, in, in the business terms and, and not losing that audience on a technology talk. Uh, let's talk about current initiatives. What do you got underway there, Joshua, in uh, in West Virginia that's, uh, that others folks would like to hear about? Well, I think the first one I'd like to talk about is um, our Cyber Risk Initiative, which um, was put into motion um, full steam ahead with the law that was passed this past year uh, on the Secure West Virginia Act. And what we've done in West Virginia is we've established in law, not only did we establish the existence of the Cybersecurity Office, which is a component of the West Virginia Office of Technology, we established in law the Chief Information Security Officer position, um, and then we put under the responsibilities of the CISO, a charge to conduct cyber risk management um, activities. And this is where we feel is an, an absolutely essential foundational component of our cybersecurity program moving forward. When you look at cybersecurity, you can ask the question of what's weak, what's vulnerable. You can look and ask, okay, what's the question of the threat? What are they trying to do? The hardest question to answer typically is what's the impact if a threat actor exploited a weakness? That impact question has to be answered by the business owner. And then it has to be vetted going up a perspective of, all right, at an agency level and at the lowest level of an entity and government organization, what's the number one technology resource that they rely on? But that number one resource may not be the number one priority resource within that department, and it may or not be anywhere close to the top 10 from a statewide perspective. But we have to understand that concept of impact as it pertains to cybersecurity so that we truly understand the risk. I find that in the environment today, I think there's a lot of organizations that don't take the time to understand the risk, and they throw money at what they view as a problem they're trying to fix. Instead of understanding it's an environment, you have to manage a risk, and you have to understand that risk. And the better you understand it, the better you can target your dollars to addressing what's actually going to cause significant 
issue if it were to happen. And you've then done your due diligence to use what limited resources you have, because let's face it, there's not going to be the resources to fix every vulnerability within every network. It's just not feasible. But we could absolutely target those dollars to the greatest risk. And that's a big initiative that we're working toward right now. And we want to be able to set this up in a way to where it will provide that business insight, that ability to manage those funds and those uh, controls and enhancements moving forward. Uh, You may have already touched on it, and I think you have, but obviously you've got a a new budget that begins uh, coming July of 2020. Uh, And I would assume, as I I think I I recollect, I think your governor just gave a state of the state last week. So tell us a little bit about those, uh, the upcoming initiatives for the next fiscal year. Oh, absolutely. So uh, from a technology perspective, uh, we, we are we are pushing forward with uh, both the cyber risk and the data center 2.0 initiatives that we recognize. We're also pushing forward on um, initiatives to modernize some security um, components that we've already identified present critical risk. And then in addition to that, we want to support agency initiatives on leveraging emerging technology. Um, how do we take technology um, and use it to improve whether it's internal government operations or it's external government services and support our agencies and their ability to go do that. But at the same time, find opportunity to benefit everyone, find opportunity to find maybe there's projects in one agency that that align with another agency, and we find an opportunity there to improve both scenarios or to cut some costs. And, and that's a, a, an important change to uh, the way in which the Office of Technology is wanting to operate and support the agency. So that's another big this year initiative um, from a technology perspective. I know a lot of states uh, uh, have been and are continuing to look at large uh, uh, enterprise-wide applications, ERPs, if you will, from uh, payroll and uh, finances. What's the West Virginia status on those big statewide programs? So we do have um, a statewide ERP system in place. And, and and it's been in place for several years now. Um, it is operated under uh, a board um, that has representation, um, and I believe that's from the governor's office, the treasury's office, and the auditor's office. And I believe that organization is a partner of ours. They manage uh, that agency, which uh, manages that application and that service. And we partner with them in helping support uh, some back-end infrastructure needs that they have um, and other aspects they need in, in integrating with our network. It's uh, coming up on a uh, – I think the contra- contract's going to come up to where that, that service is going to have to be looked at of what, what the next contract's going to look like. So I think that's coming up in the next couple years. So when you say contract, is it, uh, is it outsourced now or what's, what, what's the contract you're, you're speaking of? So there's a contract for the application and services to support that application, but it's much it's a hybrid approach where there are um, also state employees that support um, that application and services provided, but there are uh, contracts on the back end to acquire that uh, licensing and, and sure. additional services and okay. support. With that, we'll have to conclude our program today. I want to thank our guest, Joshua Spence, the Chief Technology Officer for the state of West Virginia. Joshua, thanks for taking the time to be with us. It was very informative. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And thank all of you for listening. Content from the state and local program, which also includes curated news and original articles by yours truly and other more esteemed authors, is part of the recently expanded AskTheCIO.com. 
Hope you can join us again each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time or listen to a podcast afterwards. Until then, bye for now. I'm John Thomas Flynn. You've been listening to Ask the CIO, SLED Edition with John Thomas Flynn on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.